You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Marriage is hard, right? And it's, it's even harder just with the typical issues of life. A spouse maybe that is sick, uh, somebody that has lost their job or has mental health issues. There's so many different problems that can come up. Uh, So am I just supposed to stick it out and stay with somebody that doesn't get me? I hear that all the time. And I don't know. But what will you become? And if you do stick it out... And what will you become if you don't? I I think our assumption is, well, my life would be so much better without it. But many times I think my my wife's differences, her challenges and her tendencies force me to become a better person. They force me to become the change. And I understand that that doesn't always bring happiness today, but it brings change, growth over time. So maybe there is a benefit to sticking in it a little longer, and there would be even a greater benefit if my partner would get the fact, too, that they need to change, right? I mean, I have clients that have been living in a one-sided marriage for years, and their spouse does not seem to get it. They think, oh, she's lucky. I am the greatest man in the world. And so I sit there and I worry because a guy says, no, seriously, you are so lucky to have me. (laughs) Yeah. It may not. There's a little video of a marriage fight. Uh, It may not. it, It may not be what you think it is. And you can keep blowing smoke that you're just a saint. But the reality is everyone's got issues. And if if we can't get real with each other, then we're probably going to have to, we're going to become something a lot less than we can become as humans. We're going to fall apart. So there are maybe some ways to motivate your spouse. You don't have to cross the line. You don't have to use ultimatums. Um, You don't have to beat them up if you need to see some change. But one of the things you might want to do is, is find a way to feel love for your partner before you bring up an issue. Most of the time I've found that when we're bringing up our issues with our spouse, we're not bringing up the issue out of love. And why this is so critical is because if I'm feeling anger, if I'm feeling frustrated, if I feel like you're taking advantage of me, then I will approach the conversation through that paradigm, through that way of thinking. And when I do that, my tone's going to be totally off. If I have compassion for my partner who maybe doesn't know how to communicate very well, and I feel love, and I feel an appreciation for them, if I can feel that when I go into the conversation, it might help me actually position our discussion better versus if I'm going into the discussion out of judgment. So be careful. Watch out for how you approach and the tone you approach with. Also make sure that you find the um, on switch that's inside your partner. We need to get into people deeply first and find out what does motivate them? 
There are things that motivate your partner, and there are things that motivate your partner to be a better partner to you. You've seen it at times. So go in and actually pay attention to what they are telling you that, that is a driver. Pay attention to when they are happiest and most connected to you. Right? It might be when you're sitting on the couch watching a football game, even though you hate football, but you notice they're so much more into you, or they're not into you, but they're at least connected in a way, their way. We got to remember the on switch might be on in inside our partners. We need to go find it in there. Just a couple of ideas, folks, to help you uh, motivate your partner. Find the good. Let's do it. Let's work better on our marriages, guys. Pick it up. Do your part. Come on. That's all we got. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. With just the political race the way it is, life seems kind of stressful, doesn't it? Now, it's summer, so sometimes that relieves some of the stress. Maybe you'll be taking a vacation. But I wanted to give you some some ideas, some tools to de-stress your life a little bit. And I got uh, some of these from Fortune Magazine, 15 Things to Do When You're Feeling Stressed. Uh, a great article that was out on June 8th, and, you know, we we need it. We need to find a way to de-stress if we can. Uh, but one of the ways, the fastest ways that, you know, you may not be thinking about is to increase, to decrease stress, you need to increase your endorphin production. And one of the quickest and surest ways to, to, do, uh, to do that is, you know, just get to the gym. Take a walk. Uh, anything that releases endorphins, because uh, with endorphin releases, there's the the that good feeling, that positive feeling in your body. So, anything, take a walk today, and and maybe just because the news is tense and you got a lot of people that'll be talking about it, maybe at work, take a break, get out, don't just sit around the water cooler and and keep talking about it. Instead, get up, go for a walk, even if you just walk around your building or. Um, just walk around your wherever you are at home. So positive tool, just get some exercise in you. Just simple stuff. Not You don't have to sweat it out, but something simple. Also, um, maybe a good day today, too, to watch what you're eating. Uh, if you want to decrease your stress, obviously, you might want to watch and, and minimize your um, your caffeine intake, but also watching out for the food you eat. And we've talked about it with uh, our great Ron Hager. He's telling us all the time, eat whole foods. Don't drink your, don't drink your sugars. Um, create, a, a, create a space for yourself. Uh, one thing I've done recently at my own house, I'm writing a, a new book, and I just try to get away. I go to my office, sit down there, and just escape. And find a space where I can meditate. Um, I'm getting a little bit better at that. I also have to learn to say no. That's something I'm not great at. We've had on the show just recently some tools on how to say no. So you just go look back in our archives on iTunes or on TuneIn, and you can see a, a complete interview or two within the last two weeks about learning to say no. Also, um, make a list of your goals, and when you accomplish a goal or even a part of a goal that you're trying to work on, check it off. That also creates a little endorphin, a little dopamine push for you as well. Um, another way to de-stress would be get lost in a great book. When was the last time you read a book, especially a great book? Um, possibly another opportunity for you is to 
talk to other people. And uh, they're calling them mastermind groups. But now more and more people have these groups where they can go share their ideas of what they're doing in their business. It's kind of people that are in similar fields as you. If you're a leader, they might be leaders. Um, If you're a manager, you might have management groups you can go talk to. But get out and talk to other people. I also suggest you leave the office. Get out of the office. Get out of your space. Try to get more sleep. Serve someone. All tools to help you uh, take your life back and hopefully de-stress. So what we're trying to do on the show, help you live longer and get through these tougher days where the news isn't so pretty. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Earlier we were talking about how simply the tone that of how your name um, is, is pronounced, like uh, the phonemes they were calling it, how it comes off the tongue may come off with a, a harshness of tone or maybe a softness of tone, which, which then sends a signal to another person, the listener, that you've got a masculine name or maybe a more a softer name, like Ben. So, you know, it's, it's just tone. And it's something we don't always pay attention to. But in my world of working with couples and communication and people, tone is telling, right? Tone matters. And so I wanted to spend a little time in the coach's corner talking about our tone. And um, it's it really is, I think, a really powerful indicator of of what somebody is actually feeling, of their emotion. Emotion is best managed and understood probably through somebody's uh, tone, more through their tone than their words. So pay attention to the tone, right? Tone, remember, is communication. When somebody says, and you can tell they're down, they're depressed, they're in the sitting on the couch, their arms are folded, they look sad, and you say, are you okay? And they're like, fine. Do you hear the tone? That means they're okay, right? <laughs> yeah, Ben, they're fine. Yeah, because sometimes, like, Kaylee yeah. and I will talk like that and she'll say that. But she's really sad. That's but she I, says she's okay, so I assume she's okay. Yeah, because she said, I'm okay, but her tone was like, yeah, I'm fine. Can you hear that? It's I subtle. hear, I'm fine. Okay, how about this? Yeah, I'm fine. Do you hear that? She's almost singing. Okay. Yeah, some people, some people are tone deaf. Some people can't hear it. And I appreciate Ben being honest with us today. Because tone, it's, it's communication, right? Tone tells the deeper story. Tone is our friend, not our foe. When somebody, oh, don't you give me that tone. Rapping. Yeah, Ben, just sit this one out because that, you might be missing the point. Uh, it's not, but, you know, tone. Some people just don't hear it. But tone does communicate uh, distress and levels of stress. So here are some keys. I'm going to give you five keys to recognizing and and either taming your tone when you need to tame it down or recognizing another person's tone. Okay, five basic keys. Pay attention to them. Ben, take notes because you are going to need to take notes on this one. Okay. Okay. 
Okay. You, you, ben, don't take notes. Don't take notes. Yes, sir. Just listen with your mouth shut. Just listen. Number one, tone is um, tone is not personal. Okay, tone is not. It's not. They're not trying to beat you up. It's not a personal thing. Tone is just a vibration that's coming from the emotion. It's the it's the real issue. So here are the tools. First, you got to read the signs of distress. Read the tones. If you hear volume getting louder, if you hear the pitch getting higher, or if you notice the pace of the conversation going faster, you got to see those signs. When you see those signs, it's telling you, pay attention to this one. This one's a little more erratic. If they're saying things, but they're not saying, but their emotion is showing energy, but they're not communicating using words that show they're mad. For example, just listen to how often we can change the same sentence. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Same sentence, four different meanings. I didn't say that. Okay, so it wasn't you. You did not say that. I didn't say that. You really didn't say what I'm accusing you of saying. I didn't say that. Okay, you didn't speak it. Oh, you wrote it? Okay, you wrote it down on the board. Is that what you did? You didn't say it. You wrote it. I didn't say that. Okay, so you did write it. You just didn't write what I'm saying you wrote. And the only way we can make sense of those same four words, I didn't say that, is by changing our tone and our inflection, right? So we're using this all of the time. But if you hear the volume getting louder, that should tell you something. If you've noticed the pitch is getting higher, that should tell you something. If you notice it's speeding up, pay attention to it. Then be careful and soften your heart. You cannot not communicate, right? So if I react to your negative tone and I get into my negative tone, then your tone is going to bounce off of me and I'm just going to attack you. Instead, I need to absorb what you're bringing on, your tone. And I don't need to absorb it so I'm destroyed and I can't feel anything. I absorb it so I can better understand you. I want you to share with me so I can better understand you. So I have to soften my heart and allow you to allow this information into me. And instead of just taking the negative interpretation and going with it, I need to I need to not just run with it. I need to get myself centered, focus on what I'm trying to do with you. I'm trying to be an influence. I'm trying to help you. And if you can, alter the mood or alter the mode with how I'm going to handle this and how I'm going to adjust the mood. So if I, if I can and they're mad at me and I can see I'm not mad, just tired. Okay, I'm sorry. And I might even at times give them some space. But if I come back in the room five minutes later and they seem happier, then I'm going to point out you seem happier. Sometimes it's better to just quit talking and maybe find a different mode of communicating, like a letter, a text. And then change what you can in the conversation and realize there's certain things you can't change. But I don't have to get louder because you are. I don't have to get, you know, higher screaming because you are. I don't have to run because you do. Just change the tone, the tempo, the timing. Basic stuff. But hard, isn't it? We'll take a break. Be back. More fun. Stick with us.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, for many of us, working simply feels good. But just because it feeds your ego or makes you feel important or even satisfied, that doesn't mean that it's actually good for you. How do you break the cycle of working long hours at the office and constantly checking email at home? How do you persuade those around you similarly uh, who are work-obsessed, like a demanding boss or a work-obsessed colleague, that uh, working all the time isn't healthy for you? Well, joining us is Rebecca Knight. She's a journalist and employee herself. She joins us this morning to talk about how to find a healthy balance between work and home life so that both become much more enjoyable. She wrote a wonderful article on the topic. Uh, Rebecca Knight, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Great to have you on the show. Man, this this being a workaholic, it's one thing, I guess, to, to feel like a love of your work so much, but some of what's happening to us that makes us so addicted is the, the, the workplace seems to just keep kind of taking over more and more of my life through my phone, through, my, um, through expectations. That is true, but, but, but it's really important to, to acknowledge the fact that you're also letting it exactly. take over. Um, you are picking up me. your phone every time you hear that bing or ting that makes you feel needed, it makes you feel important, makes you feel wanted. Talk about the, the research in this area. Um, I know you cited a lot of it in your, in your work, and wh- what are they finding out? Is, is it that I'm giving up so much of my power? Is it just that a phone has become sens- such a central part of my life that I don't distinguish between work and home? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, I mean, there's part of it, there's, there's the research, and then there's just sort of the common sense about it, is that the phone is this addictive thing. It, it, it does, um, it, it is your pathway to the outside world. And so if you ever have a down moment or just a moment where you want to feel needed, want to feel important, you can reach for it, and it will give you that feeling of satisfaction. Um, but the research, there are piles of research that show that this is not good for us. Um, it's not healthy for us, and, and it's also really not good for our relationships with people in our family, with our friends, in our community. Man, that's – I mean, it's – we knew that, right? It, like you said, it, our gut tells us that it's not quite right. But uh, as, a, as a relationship coach, I see it all the time. People just can't – turn off their phones, they or they won't turn off their phones. They absolutely can. And in your book or in your article, How to Break Your Addiction to Work, you walk us through um, some, some shifts, some tools that we can use to help us to maybe take back our life and to, to shut down a little bit of the addiction. Talk to us about um, some, of the, some of the ideas, some of the tools we can do to take our lives back. Sure, sure. Because I think that the other thing, and you, you just talked about this too in terms of you seeing it all the time with your clients, is that when you do pick up your phone or you take a call or you send a text or you send an email, I mean, you're thinking, oh, I need to do this now. Um, my colleague needs to hear from me. My boss needs me to respond. But you are saying to the person you're with, whether it's your child, your spouse, your friends, um, you are less important to me. This is more important you are not as important. So I think that's the, one of the first uh, steps is, yeah. is really acknowledging that that's not the message you want to be sending, particularly to your partner and your loved ones and your children. Um, you want to be telling them they're important. That's so um, true. Because it's a subtle is, statement, so right? So you, all of this is, Matt. It is so much common sense, and it is, of course, um, but, it is, but it is hard to do. It's hard to do. So the first step really is to redefine success. Um, and that's really thinking about 
what it means to live a full life. Of course, you want to do well in your job, and you want to, um, and you want your boss to think you're doing a good job. You want your colleagues to respect you and to acknowledge that you're pulling your weight. Um, but the research shows, at the end of the day, and, not, and again, it's not just research; it's also just human beings. At the people on their deathbed, in terms of what they think about, in terms of their life, their full, their whole life, it is the relationships they had, um, the impact they had on other people. So it's not just about um, getting the next raise or promotion or attaboy from your boss. It really is about thinking about what it is to be successful, and that is to have a good relationship with your kids, to have a loving relationship with your, with your partner or your spouse, to have um, physical and emotional well-being, to, to, to do good in your community and in your world. So really thinking about success in that way, not just in terms of your status and your paycheck. So that's yeah. really one of the first steps. Well, yeah, because we, we've kind of been taught our whole life it's about being upwardly mobile, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, every team, you've got to be better, get to a better team team, conquer that team, get to high school, play the sports, get to college. I mean, it's always like this this competition to be the best, the best, the best, the best, the best. And now then you get to the workplace and now we're telling you, okay, now go focus on your family. <laughs> but it's like we, we haven't been conditioned that way. Right. No, no, no. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's just so, tragic. It is. So it is. So, so it's redefining success and to understand that being a successful person means doing a good job at work, but it importantly means doing being a good person to your to your being a good parent, being a good spouse, being a good community member, all of those things too. So it's not just thinking about um, not just measuring your entire self worth in your um, in your workplace, and you really need to have high quality relationships and engagement in your community. Yeah, interesting. Um, so so you get the you kind of get the redefinition down. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the next thing what? is about really paying attention to where you want to devote your time and your energy. Um, you know, you, energy and your attention is your most precious asset in this world that where things are just coming at you and we are expected to be on 24-7. So it's really being deliberate about where you're focusing um, and this is one of the things that you talked about when you first were first introducing this topic is that we're constantly multitasking. We're, we're sort of out watching a soccer game, watching our kids' soccer game, but we're also emailing. We're um, on, a movie, on a movie date with our spouse, but we're also um, texting our friend mm. or we're checking scores or we're you know, talking to our boss. So this is the thing really is that it is being deliberate and saying, I'm with you. I am here. I am fully present. I'm, I'm not on my phone. And, and actually choosing that. And choosing that and really and putting away your phone, not getting out your phone, not uh-huh. bringing your phone with you everywhere you go. Um, th- those, are the, those are the ways. And I keep talking about this addiction to work because it really is an addiction to your smartphone um, more than anything uh, right now. That- yeah. Well, and it's – and again, it's like your article talks about. It's, um, it's a morally worthy concept, right? So who – I mean, it's it's important to have a job and to be good mm-hmm. at it. So it has this weird identifiable, you know, validation for me. Um, and yet when I walk in my house, like you said, if I'm not able to 
turn it off, then I am telling everyone else in the room where they fit in my life. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that is, as we said, not the message you want to be sending no. um, to to, the, to your loved ones and to your friends because because work. I mean, it, it's hard because we all we live in this world where work does bleed into other things, and um, and in some ways that's that's a good thing that we that that work is not this compartmentalized thing because your colleagues are your second family and they and you can develop important meaningful connections at work. Um, but at the same time, we, it, 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 your job is not you. You are not your job. Your job is not you. And yeah. that is an important thing to, to bear in mind when you are thinking about where you want to devote your time, what deserves your attention, what deserves your energy. Man, this is um, – I think it's just good. It's good to, to take, take common sense but then get real with it like you're teaching us. Again, we're speaking with Rebecca Knight who wrote an article, How to Break Your Addiction to Work, which is in Harvard Business Review. She's also published in the New York Times, the USA Today, and the Financial Times. We'll take a break, come back, and continue this discussion with Rebecca about uh, some other ways you can break your addiction to work. you got to redefine what work is, why it's important, what success is, and refocus your attention. Become intentional, as we're learning from Rebecca And uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about resetting expectations, maybe doing a little digital detox, which could be so painful, but so valuable. Stick with us, folks, giving you the tools, the information you need to uh, take your life back. Heaven forbid that you get in the now and become now in your life. How powerful could that be? We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Rebecca Knight. Rebecca is a, a, a freelance journalist in Boston and a lecturer at Wesleyan University, where she also teaches writing courses. She has written many pieces focused on personal finance and business education. Rebecca wrote a wonderful article um, that we found in a Harvard Business Review called Work-Life Balance, How to Break Your Addiction to Work. And she's walking through some of the, the research as well as just the common sense lessons that she has learned about how to break the work addiction. Um, and Rebecca, we welcome you back to the program. Thanks. I'm having a lot of fun. Is this is this an interesting topic for you? Because you probably, you relate to it as well, don't you? I, we all, don't we all, though, Matt? Totally. I mean, this is the thing that the, the living in this digital era um, with the world's information at our fingertips, it's just, it's hard not to... Uh, to, to, to want to be to want to be interacting with it yeah and so and so but the problem is is that as we as you've been talking about it is it can be a detriment to your relationships and to your health and well-being if you are constantly um, constantly online and not and not really taking the time to to recharge to reset you know if you're if you are constantly online constantly thinking about work your next task your next chore, your next project, you're not ever having time to daydream and to, and to sit back and, and think long-term and strategically about 
where you're going next, not just what is the next thing. So mm. that's an important thing to remember, too, in the sense of getting ahead in your career. Um, you know, don't just do this for your sake of your relationships and your, and your spouse and your kids, but really think about this, too, in terms of your career. Because if you are just focused on the next project, you aren't thinking long-term about what's next for you in your life. And is that, I mean, that's important. You're, you're running a marathon here, right? It's not a right, sprint. exactly, exactly. And you're exactly. going to be burnt out by the time you're 30. <laughs> by the time yeah. you're 40, you'll just be a vegetable sitting on the couch eating Cheetos. Right. I mean, it's a bad visual, but but I mean, it, that's what you're saying, though, right, is is look at this as a long term play. And yet, um, you don't. So it's not like you just have to slow down and not perform. You can perform, but you also can't expect yourself to be a, a superhuman. One of your great quotes in there said, uh, or um, I think this may have been from uh, Blair Loy said, you shouldn't have superhuman expectations. Well, exactly, exactly, um, and th- and that is and that is one of the the, the, mo- the important things too, in the sense of you can't be working all the time, um, and if you are, as you said, you're going to burn out. So you need to make sure that you have regular, predictable time off, and not only. I mean, there's just. I mean, especially as we're we're nearing summertime, and there's so many indications that Americans. You know, we get the smallest number of vacation days of any developed country and Americans don't even take all their vacation days. That's insane. That is time. We used to laugh at the Japanese because their work week was so horrible. And now I think ours is worse. Worse. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, what's happening to us? Take that time. You also, in your article, um, you talk about uh, the digital detox Mm -hmm. and I mean, a lot of times I've tried a digital detox, and quite honestly, Rebecca, I got the shakes, and so I couldn't, I couldn't shake it off. So, yeah. so talk about some ideas about uh, how to go through a detox with your phone. Well, I mean, it, I mean, the fact of the matter is, you have to, you, you're going to need help. You just, I mean, if you were addicted to anything, you can't do it alone. You can't break this alone. So you need. Matt, I hope you enlisted friends I did. and family. My wife. Once, okay. I, once and, I told my wife, she, she was... She, she let you crack? Yeah, well, no, 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 no. But it got really tense. <laughs> we had to call in. <laughs> We're not going to go there today. She had but, to have a lot um, of treats around. Let's just say that. <laughs> but, I, but that's the thing, is that you need, to, um, you need to put your phone away. You need to not turn your phone on. And you need your friends and family's help and saying, this is what I'm trying to do and explain to them why you're trying to do it. So it's not just, oh, I want to, I want to be less dependent on my phone. Actually spell out why you want to do this, why it matters to you and why it matters to them. Because, uh, you know, uh, talking about the, the messages that you're sending to your, to the people around you when you're on your phone and not paying attention to them say, I want to be more present in our conversations. I want to be able to stop and smell the roses. I want to make sure I am fully acknowledging the beauty of the world and, and really in, or engrossed in your, our conversation or engrossed in this movie that we're watching, not constantly thinking about, oh, does anyone need me at work? <laughs> Is my boss calling me? Um, how did that project turn out? So, so you need to explain to them why it matters to you and also why it's in their best interest to help you. That's a... I mean, really, that's that's the way to do it. And I've even seen doing it as a family. 
mm-hmm. kind of makes mm-hmm. it even more valuable. Or we're going to be doing a family trip this year, and during the trip, we're going to do a major digital detox. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and, and you know, talking about how you got, you got the shakes when you first started to do it, it is hard. It is hard at first because we have these sort of little twitchiness to us now. With any down moment we have, we're waiting in line at the post office. We're, um, y- you know. We're waiting for the bill at a restaurant. We're, you know, any down moment, we we reach for our phone t- to fill the time, oh. and and we and we're not stopping to smell the roses, and and that's and that is what's what's really sad right now. Well, talk. It's weird because when you know, if I had to go, let's say, to the post office and. Um, wait in line, and I knew I'd wait in line, I might, I guess, take a book, right? And Mm -hmm, taking mm -hmm. a book to read would be so valuable, and and everyone is so noble almost, like, wow, you're really (laughs) taking care of your seconds. But Look at that smart guy. Right, right. but if I pull my phone out and I'm reading a book on my phone, it's still – it's not as noble in a way. It's like I'm still – but what you're saying isn't – it's like the last thing we maybe need to do is fill more time. You're saying we need to just be more present, be more right. mindful in the moment. Right. Just stand there and take in the post office almost. In. Let your mind wander. Let, you know, and even think about work if you need to, but don't don't be so online about it. Yeah. You know, really just ponder a project, ponder a career move. Um, while you're in line, and 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 think and think deeply about it, I rather love that. than think in this sort of surface, shallow way. Well, and it is. It's we've become a robot. So the minute mm-hmm. I have a second, my brain automatically wants the dopamine of either playing the New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> Yeah. Or finding my Netflix shot or you know option, but it's mm-hmm. it's going to just give me ten more things to do. Let alone right. check my email. Let alone finish that activity. So it, maybe that's that, and that is one of the points of your detox is just hide the phone. Hide and, the phone, and and it's and it's so important to do this when you get home in terms of um, in terms of your relationships. There is a lot of evidence that shows that even if you and I are talking, sitting at the dining room table, having dinner, and my, my phone is just on the table, we're actually com- we're having a conversation, we're eating dinner, just the mere presence of my phone means we're not going as deeply with each other huh. because we are both constantly aware that at any moment I could be interrupted, that at any moment I could hear a ping or a ting and think, oh, I, my, I need to devote my attention elsewhere. I'm sorry, Matt, but yeah. um, the spaghetti meatballs is delicious, and what you're saying is, is so interesting, but I'm needed elsewhere. And so there's just research that shows that the mere presence of that phone affects the, uh, what we're talking about and how deeply we talk about it. So, so it really is important to not just not just, not, not just to sort of say, oh, I'm not looking at my phone, but to really Put it in the other room. Put it in a drawer. Don't even have it around. Yeah. And because I guess, too, it's part of this is we're, we're really not growing deeper roots in the relationship mm-hmm. or in our lives. We're growing kind of a really shallow root base. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it's also, you know, just in terms of going back to the workplace, too, um, and I make this point in my column, you know, 
younger people at the office, the more junior employees are looking to you. They're looking to see how do I get to be a manager? How do I get to be a leader? And if, even if it is normal, completely normal in your organization that people are in meetings and tapping away on their laptops or looking at their phones, um, it is rude and it's disrespectful. And so if your junior employees look at you and see what you're doing and then they go off and do it at a client meeting or they're going off and talking to customers and doing that, you need to be, you need to understand they learned it by watching you. And so, um, and so think about that too, when you are dealing with, with junior employees. Holy cow. Now I'm really on. (laughs) Now you're scaring me because I usually take a nap during the day. And so now I got to stop doing that too. They're all looking at me like, why can't we nap? Anyway, um, one of the things that I didn't realize, too, um, and I mean, I I did realize it. It's just, again, we don't focus on it, is the health issues of this. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so by prioritizing technology and work last, I am allowing my health and my nutrition and my sleep and my exercise Mm -hmm. to take the the front seat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So you need to be, I mean, you can't be productive and creative if you are working constantly. You just can't, and you certainly can't do it without getting enough sleep, getting, eating good, wholesome foods, and moving your body. And so that's the other problem with being addicted to work. And this is, you know, I mean, it's also just not good for your eyes to be looking at a screen all day, but, um, but it's, it's just really not good for your overall health to be so consumed by work. So that mm. is an important thing, too, Does... to prioritize your health. And I mean, I guess just for all of us, this is this is just life, right? And this is the new technology, but we've probably never had a more intrusive technology that because this is a technology like when we used to have the when the television came out, it was so heavy in a big wood box. It had to stay pretty much in the living room. But Mm -hmm. now we have this phone. That eventually, like I, Rebecca, this may sound crazy, but I use my phone to to chart my sleep, mm-hmm. and it is basically under my pillow. <laughs> it's wow. it is so close to me, but eventually, it's it is every part of our life. It goes in the bathroom with us. It goes mm-hmm. everywhere with us, and so we may we may be on this cutting edge of and not really even understanding fully this the impact that this is going to have to everything about us. But yes, the little research we have... We don't know the long-term effects of this no. kind of technology. And, you know, I, I can't even speculate on them, but we can... But it goes back to the common sense. It would, you know, using the phone to chart every single thing about our bodies, I mean... I don't know. No, it's scary. I mean, it's, 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 really, it's really helpful to have yeah. that. And I think it's probably great that you get to know, okay, here's the way I'm sleeping. Here's the way my right. biorhythms are, are acting. And here's what happens when the temperature rises or, or I'm feeling ill. Or, you know, that's, that's helpful information to have. And if it can help you become a more healthy person, great. But I think there does become a time where you just say, do I need this? I mean, yeah. I, I, I probably was getting along just fine without it. Um, <laughs> now, anyway. now, now I have a watch that right, exactly. is connected to my, and eventually I'll have a pacemaker that's connected to my watch that's connected. Right. So, um, I mean, I think it was. A, I think it's an awesome article. Everybody needs to read it. If if we had to kind of uh, chalk it up to one point, Rebecca, what would you say is the one thing 
that we all need to remember to get that work-life balance back? Be deliberate. Think about how you want to spend your time and with whom you want to spend it. And that's it. That's all I'm going to say. Full stop. Be Be deliberate. deliberate. Full stop. Yeah. Man, Rebecca, great work. Keep writing. Keep doing your your. Thank you. Keep thank giving you. back. Uh, Rebecca Knight, thank you so much. Thanks. It was great to be here. You bet. Again, look for Rebecca's articles in the New York Times, USA Today, the Financial Times, also Harvard Business Review. It's just it's got it all and uh, in depth, right? And that's what we want. Um, it's your life, folks. We got to balance it, or we will regret it. And I don't want to guilt any of us, but. We don't want to make that mistake. You've only got one life to live. Let's live it. We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome to my house, folks. Welcome back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, one of the problems with not having a work-life balance is it's going to negatively impact your work, right? I've got, a, I've got, I've got evidence. I've got evidence. Listen to this little uh, diploma printing mistake that embarrasses a high school. Graduates at a California high school received a final reminder that uh, that you know school's important, folks. You got to get you got to do it right, right? When they received their diploma covers and it was the diploma cover was bearing the name Ontario High School, but the word school was spelled wrong. Oh, so come on. I know it says Ontario High School. The typo went out with a printing error. That uh, was made by grad. Uh, that was that made and uh, that was made by the whoever printed these products. Five hundred and fifty graduates received a, a letter with a new diploma, basically, and an apology letter saying, "We are so sorry that we spelled school wrong." <laughs> Again, I'm going to bet that was somebody that's overworked, underpaid, stressed out of their head. And still using a dot matrix printer. Wow, you know your printer. Oh, yeah. I've been around a long time. Anyway, you got to be careful, folks. Especially when you're printing the diploma for Ontario High School. It's a very good school. Got to be careful. Yeah, maybe somebody had a lisp and that's how they honestly thought it was spelled. Yeah. I doubt it. I think it was just a misprint. But then there's like, you done graduated from the school. And then off they go and you realize maybe our education is not what it's cracked up to be. Um, that's that's a simple error. We And we do it all the time. I think Rebecca Knight made a great point for all of us to remember when it comes to your time, you – because it's such a finite resource that you, however you handle time is going to um, communicate not only what is important to you, but what's not important to you. And so one of the things I, I guess I would just challenge us all to do is to recognize that and become intentional like she's talking about and actually make an evaluation of your own life. 
as she was talking, I sat there and I thought, man, I'll walk in my house and if all my family are there, literally, I could have a TV on and five people on cell phones. And everyone's, I mean, a lot of them are doing great stuff. Some of them are just doing dumb stuff. But a lot of them are reading good books and, and, and watching, you know, TED Talks and wonderful things. Um, but at some point, though, if I'm choosing my technology, I'm probably not choosing my relationship. So can I just challenge you to take the advice of Rebecca Knight and go on a little digital detox sometime this summer with your family Get everybody used to, again, the days when we just turn the stuff off and we do something together. Um, It used to be that when we'd watch movies as a family, people were always frustrated because no one's talking during the movie. We're not. So we're not even spending good quality time together. But now we, we can actually all watch a movie together and still not even be in the same movie because we're all using technology. Let's make relationships important again by just putting them first. Do a digital detox. Put your phone away. And as a leader at your office, don't pull it out. Don't pull your phone out. Don't have it with you. Don't turn to it every chance you get. See if you can just put it away for a while. Interesting stuff, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you hopefully have a relationship that lasts longer than your cell phone plan. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Well, we just heard some some wonderful advice about how to rethink your thinking. And there's something inherent and I think essential uh, as all of us. What we're assuming then is that we have a choice on our thinking. But what the good doctor Stephen Hayes was just teaching us is you only have a choice if if you recognize the choice. If you wait too long and allow the thought to just, you know, jump in the sled and start its way down the hill, there's a point that you're not going to turn that around. The speed's going to pick up and uh, the grooves may already be cut for the sled and you're just going to follow the last 500 paths that you've taken. If you want to create the new thought, you have to eventually recognize the stinking thinking. You got to recognize where it's uh, where you're having the thought that maybe you don't want to have. And a key point is don't don't freak out about it, right? Don't get so caught up like I got to stop, I got to stop it, oh my heavens. Because I think that very energy, that emotion is what's going to drive the thought more chemical. Remember, your thoughts bring chemistry. So if I ask you to think of somebody that hurt you or offended you as a child, can you think of somebody? Can you think of somebody that made you feel less than or demeaned or somebody who hurt your feelings in high school or junior high? If you can still remember the thought and have the feelings, it's because thoughts have feelings and chemistry and recipes of chemistry associated with each thought. Those thoughts are stored. They're called scripts. And once you, once you kind of inject emotion into a thinking pattern, like somebody that is sinning, doing something that they believe they shouldn't be doing or knowing they shouldn't be doing, 
they might start building every time they do an act, look at something they shouldn't look at. They might then create a reaction like, oh, man, God's going to be mad. I'm so bad. And they get in and they take all of that emotion and they pile it back onto the thought. And it just keeps compounding the issue, compounding it, digging it deeper, making it deeper, harder to get out of. So at some point, we don't need you to beat yourself up. I I honestly believe if your God, if he were sitting next to you when you committed that mistake or that sin or whatever you want to call it, your God wouldn't just sit there and induce a lot of horrible feelings on you. Your God would just love you, right? And bring some peace to you. (sighs) Not that you're perfect, but that you're loved. And once you could probably feel that feeling that you're loved— then we can go and evaluate the thought. And you might start to recognize that before the thought, there was a, there was a, there was a subtle pre-thought feeling. One of the things that we've been taught a lot uh, from some of the professors here at BYU about, for example, pornography addiction, is that two of the biggest drivers of the addiction are anxiety and uh, boredom. So if you have a little anxiety on board, that may create the thought that maybe we ought to go do looking go start looking at some porn which then creates feelings which then drives action or boredom hey there's nothing going on here maybe i ought to go look at that thing that and then off we go part of what we want to do is not just add on a ton of negativity and a, ne- a bunch of guilt and pain what we might want to do is just recognize what is the pre-thought what are the th- thoughts you have And then, like our good doctor was telling us, maybe turn it into a song, maybe make it funnier, maybe do something to, you know, get rid of the emotional tension so we don't just gang up and drive these things deeper. Anyway, it's just an idea, right? But it's an idea that can make us better. Know that your thoughts are driven by your echoes of your history. And those echoes aren't going away, but they are yours. You're here on this earth to act and not just be acted upon, even by your history that was misunderstood by a five-year-old boy. It's time to act. Let's start trying. Start making fun of our thoughts a bit. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you think about it, if everybody has some reason to be a little messed up, right? We got our parents to blame. You know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have, you know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging and they need to get out of it. And sometimes they just need you. So seriously, Go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got, uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training where I would take these families and and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships to make sure that they were learning, you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, One of the things that I have found is, is key to parenting, as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids, 
is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world. And, and I think that's true, except what they also, I believe, need is uh, just they just need to know they're that they that they're cared for, that they're worth something. And I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks, our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school, that we need to validate their worth, not just their works. Right? Like we talk a lot about what our kid did and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He he was, you know, um, valedictorian, top of his class. And we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments, we might be setting them up for something. Because uh, most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those per class. So there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting this social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just their their work ethic, their, their sense of um, care for others. They... Um, their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a God, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? Encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more than you're speaking. And that ex- that by letting them express, even if their expression you don't like or is it you know it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough, it doesn't matter. Let them express. Shine a light on their strengths. Identify what they are good at. Go figure out, take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time um, and Go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you just go look up our our um, our uh, what are they called our podcasts. That's it. Go look up our podcasts and listen to them, folks. And go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what they, their strengths are, you might start 
helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is part of the problem. That is some of the anger, the frustration you see in middle America. People are mad. (sighs) And we've got to somehow take our country back when it comes to our, our businesses, our economy. We are so into, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Just fatten yourself up, and tomorrow will be fine. But uh, it doesn't It doesn't seem like that. It seems like we might be setting ourselves up for another fall. When a tiny percentage of Americans have enough savings to cover their bills for three months, when like 5% maybe, 10% of America could cover their – Three months of bills if, if they stopped working today. That's scary. If everyone else is living paycheck to paycheck, we need some tough love. And the problem is we keep looking to leaders to do it. And I think the we might be giving our leadership way too much um, – what's the word? Respect? <laughs> we might be thinking that our, our Congress people are going to solve some of this stuff. And they obviously can't especially if the legislation is being written by the companies and the organizations that are um, that are benefiting. So this is our deal. This is our issue. And what I would love to have happen, we need a little tough love. Okay, so, there, so there's a story I found on CNN about a dad who sells his disrespectful son's SUV on Craigslist. Okay, he's just had it. He's fed up with his son smoking weed and acting all thug-like, a Florida dad uh, said. He, so he sold his teen's SUV on Craigslist. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And he agreed to take $250 off the price if the buyer lived in the area just so his son would see the vehicle every now and then to remind him of how good he had it. Now, is that just a petty dad? No, no, it's not. It's a smart dad. I'd take 500 off if you could get a neighbor to buy it and let the son see that you can't treat people like that. He wrote on Craigslist, I have my son's truck up for sale that I bought for him as his first car. He thinks it's cool to drive around with his friends smoking dope and acting all thug, especially not showing me and my wife the respect we deserve. This was a vehicle to finish school in, get a decent job and get a head start in life, but chose to throw it all away because his friends would rather have an influence on him than me. He'd rather have his friends have an influence on him more than I do. Now he can't uh, put those Jordans to use. Now now he can put the Jordans to use and walk, um, you know, they're a little swear word there, Uh, walk his blank off on the way to school. The truck's nice. It has ice cold air, power, everything. It's it's dirty inside, but you know, with somebody with a little pride and respect can clean that right up. So it's on sale. And maybe that's what we need is somebody to come in and just whip us and just take us out and say, I mean, do we need another economic collapse? Or can you do something about it? Just ask yourself, what can you do about it? If your answer is nothing, then we gotta rethink, right? And keep listening. We'll find ways. One way is to stay informed. Another way is to vote. And if you're frustrated with voting on the national level, vote on the local level. Look at your Congress people. They're having a huge impact on your life. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, healthcare is a billion-dollar industry, and within the healthcare industry, what does America spend the most money on? It's not cancer. It's not traumas. It's not injuries or even heart conditions, uh, which, by the way, 10 years ago was the co- one of the costliest uh, things we were spending our money on. Here to discuss the rising epidemic of mental health costs and the study he conducted to find out uh, this information is uh, Dr. Charles Rerig, and he is working, um, he's the vice president and institute fellow and founding director of Alterum's Center for Sustainable Health Spending. Dr. Rerig, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. What an interesting... This blew my mind. These numbers are out of control. But So give us the numbers. The, in the United States, we spent how much money on mental health disorders or issues? Uh, about $201 billion, but that was back in 2013, which wow. is the latest year for which we have the data. And, and by the way, health care spending in total as of this month, is running at an annual rate of about $3.3 trillion. Wow. About 18% of GDP. Unbelievable. $3.3 trillion total health care spending, and then about $200 billion just on mental disorders like anxiety and depression. Again, numbers from 2013. What... Um, Wow. Which is, by the way, it's going up, right? Just even 10 years ago, it was, uh, it was only, it was about 50 billion lower than that, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the thing that jumped out at me probably more than anything was, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom I, amongst most people I know is that spending on heart disease would be the highest. And that indeed was true back in 1996, which is the first year uh, within the study period we have here. Um, it was way above uh, mental disorders and other conditions. Um, by about 2004, they crossed over, and now mental disorders are, are the highest by far over heart conditions. So, the But the interesting... Uh, cause of this, it isn't that spending on mental disorders has risen so quickly. It's risen about an average rate. It's spending on health, on heart disease has risen uh, very slowly, only about 2% per year from 1996 to 2013. Why is that? That is uh, a great question, and it has a great answer, I think. Um, (laughs) Most well, first of all, uh, it's not just spending that has grown at a slow rate, but the mortality rate from heart disease has been falling, and, you know, age-adjusted. So at the same age as fewer people are dying of heart disease. So prevalence is not uh, growing rapidly for, for heart disease. And the probably the number one reason for that is all the people who quit smoking 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, you know, if you look at the details of our data, you'll see that spending on hypertension, on, on high blood pressure and high cholesterol, hyperlipidemia, uh, have both grown quite rapidly over this time. But better control of your blood pressure and your cholesterol also is a, uh, uh, helps prevent heart disease. So between lifestyle changes, smoking primarily, and then uh, better control of hypertension and cholesterol, I think that's a lot of what lies behind the very slow spending on heart disease. Yeah. And then meanwhile, um, we, as we're living longer, 
and if we are, you know, experiencing heart disease issues, um, I, I'm pretty sure it, it also correlates to levels of depression and anxiety and other, you know, other mental health issues. So, yeah. so every other disease impacts mental health as well. Yes, actually, I did a study a few years back um, that where I was looking at, at disabilities in the population. You know, as people age and they be they begin to have problems yeah. with hearing and remembering and seeing and daily activities. Um, it's amazing how much that correlates back to anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. I, I think the cause and effect goes both ways to some degree. Does, I mean, is this sustainable? Uh, is this level of health care spending, I guess, in general and specifically mental health spending, I, I guess, is, can we afford this? <laughs> um, that is also a great question, especially since I'm with the Center for Sustainable Health Spending. Right. And, and one of our goals when we were formed a little over five years ago was to try to answer the question about what rate of increase in health spending would be sustainable, because uh, everyone know, knew it wasn't sustainable, but what would be? Um, and I, I think the, um, you know, it's health spending as a whole that we have to worry about in terms of sustainability. And um, so not, not just the, you know, spending on mental disorders. Right, right. But we will, um, if you keep your eyes out, I've got a blog coming out in the Health Affairs, uh, Health Policy Journal. Uh-huh on this topic, and we have something called the Triangle of Painful Choices, which looks out about 20 years, looks out to 2035, and says, okay, if health spending, even if we manage to control health spending better than we ever have and have it grow at just the same rate as GDP and stabilize the share of our economy that goes to health, by 2035, um, we will have to increase our taxes by 20% in order to have enough money to keep spending on national defense and uh, you know other other sort of non-health items right. education and safety net programs and stuff at at their historic minimum levels so think about that for a moment we, you know 20% more taxes in order to hold spending on national defense and other non-health items to their historical lows. I'm keeping Social Security out of that. Uh, yeah. Uh, other non-health items, because that's part of what's what's causing the problem. You know, the problem is is that uh, the baby boomers, right. which I'm one, are, uh, you know, we're all aging, and we all get on Social Security, and we all get on Medicare. You're killing us, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> you are killing us. We're what are we going to do with you baby boomers? Now, we're living too long. <laughs> you are. And honestly, how great is that, really? I mean, that we're living longer, except... It's almost like we back to kind of the mental health world. We need we need some information. We need more education around it because it also seems like um, you know there are some answers for people with a lot of mental health issues. Kind of more of I guess the more the more basic type, the more common type, the less complex types of some of these issues. And and there's a lot of other ways to treat them and to look at them. And it's almost like we don't even address mental health because the stigma, like you said in your article, lingers so much. Yes. Um, you know, the, the theory is it gets un, it's underreported in a lot of the surveys because people don't uh, want to 
confess to it. And, you know, substance abuse is, is one of the ones, in fact, that is most understated, I think. Um, you know, I mean, but there has been a revolution in the treatment of anxiety and depression. Right. Uh, and it wasn't that long ago when Freudian, you know, analysis, sort of the Woody Allen phenomenon, mm-hmm. where you'd, you'd go see your psychiatrist five days a week. Uh, which, <laughs> and talk it and out. The costs of that tend to mount up. Yeah, right. Um, and and then a lot of people would lament they didn't get anywhere doing it. Uh, but then, uh, you know, along came Prozac and, and then the, the follow-on uh, drugs. And there's been a big shift from talk therapy into... Uh, drug therapy, and that really has reduced the cost of treating anxiety and depression. There's still, you know, the spending is still rising. It's one of the faster rising categories, but that's because more people are being treated rather than than the cost per person being treated. I wonder, too, I mean, in a way, uh, Dr. Rierig, it it parallels um, very naturally the news cycles we see. I mean, we see these mass shootings. We see um, the air, the pilot that crashes the airplane. One of the groups of people that I know that underreport their own mental health issues are people like pilots, you know, uh, police department, fire department, uh, because they don't, you know, it's going to impact my job. If all of a sudden I have depression, then I or I have anxiety. You can't. I can't just go start taking anti-anxiety meds without my my airline. You know, looking at me funny. You know what that what that makes me think of is in sports the whole concussion right phenomenon where it used to be that you just say walk it off. <laughs> yeah, shake it know, off. Shake it off and get back out there. <laughs> and that I think with with a lot of the sort of. Mental issues, anxiety, uh, you know, that's what people still do and, and do, I guess, to a degree. Mm. If it doesn't make things worse, that's what you've got to do. It's not quite the, the perfect analogy with concussions. But. Right. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Charles uh, Rearig, and he is um, the vice president and institute fellow and founding director of Alterum's Center for Sustainable Health Spending. His research interests include timelier tracking of health spending and determining its sustainable growth rate, modeling future growth. We're going to come back because one of the issues, it's not just the $200 billion we spend on mental health and mental disorders a year, but mental health also is costing businesses a lot of money, and I wanted to uh, to talk to Dr. Rierig about that as well. So stick with us, continuing the discussion of the costs of mental health, and are we on the right track? Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, $3.3 trillion are spent each year on health care, $200 billion of that on mental disorders. And it leads, uh, it leads the pack, folks. It's ahead of cancer. It's ahead of um, uh, heart disease and uh, traumas, medical traumas and injuries. I'm telling you, it is a big, big deal. We see stories in the news of mental health gone awry, and remember, most people, when we talk about mental health, 
they're, I mean, the most common thing is they're going to suffer from anxiety, depression, something like that. Uh, about 20 percent, they say, of the population, according to our guest today, will sometime in their life, one in four, actually maybe 25 percent, one in four people will experience mental health conditions at some point in their life. And uh, he's here to not only just teach us and give us the numbers of his research, but maybe give us some some solutions, some ideas, things that we should be watching out for. His name is Dr. Charles Rearig, and he is a uh, vice president and institute fellow and founding director of Alterum's Center for Sustainable Health Spending. Um, you can go find out more um, on, on the website, on his website, about uh, the uh, the about his work he's doing and the research he's doing. The website is healthaffairs.org, um, where he's a contributor and a blogger there. Or you can go to Alterum, A-L-T-A-R-U-M dot org. Dr. Charles Rerig, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Matt. Uh, this uh, the number is obviously staggering, but talk to me about the impact that the mental health issues have on businesses. Yeah, now that is not something uh, as a part of this study, so I'm going to be a little bit general. You'll be on winging that. it. Yeah, I'll be winging it a little bit, but uh, um, but you know we know that mental health issues affect workers' productivity, and uh, in in the health economics field, we go from talking about the cost of a disease, meaning how much do we spend directly on it, and then the economic burden of the disease, which brings in these other effects, one of which is a lower productivity at work. And when someone's less productive at work, it means ultimately uh, you know, their company is less productive. Right. Uh, it affects the economy as a whole. It affects economic growth, and all, all of these things uh, ultimately, are, you know, are a drag on on our country. Mm. In fact, uh, in the article, um, it cited a number: one hundred ninety-three billion dollars is lost uh, in lost earnings per year, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, because of. Uh, just mental health issues. So it, it impacts. And and also, I, I look at it, the stress, right, and the stress that it causes to other family members and the mm-hmm. concern and other health-related issues just that come from that. Yes. And, and those stresses, by the way, end up being uh, a source of additional illnesses. Uh, you know, one of the things that they're, we're discovering more and more is how stress, I mean, there there are good stresses in your life, but Right. Bad stresses are really bad for your health, and they they can be implicated in a multitude of other diseases. Why, you know, if it's so prevalent, it's such a part of our life, really what do you see is the reason we don't talk about it more? Why are we not working more on mental health, you know, issues uh, in, in our country publicly? Um, good, uh, good question. I mean, I think that... There, there are people who are trying to talk about it, and you may be familiar with the term mental health parity uh-huh. of, you know, it used to be that if you had a mental health problem, you know, if you were seeing a uh, therapist, uh, the amount that your insurance company would pay for that care was much less than if you were going in to have an appendectomy or, uh, you know, have your heart disease treated. Right. Um, and so there's been a big argument for let's no, let's start funding mental health 
the same way we do, you know, equally generously, or if some people don't think uh, it's very generous for the rest of the diseases. But um, I think the, the, the reason why you have some resistance to that is some sense that we all harbor some, you know, some levels of mental health problems. Right. <laughs> that you're really opening Pandora's box if you make it cheap to for everyone to have a mental health problem treated. Huh. Yeah, it's like, let's not start doing that. Um, is it, has uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, been helpful in this, hurtful? Where do you see that uh, playing out in this? Um, I Well, I think in the end, it's tremendously helpful uh, in, in a couple of ways. It, it provides better access to mental health services for a a bunch of people who who probably are more in need of it, you know, live more stressful lives than the rest of us already. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let alone to be stuck without health insurance when they get sick. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's good for access to mental health services for a new set of people, for the newly insured. You know what, there's 10 million, 12, 13 million people who have gained insurance, maybe more, through the Affordable Care Act. Um, and... Um, you know, there there are all kinds of stories of people bank, being bankrupted by health care expenses. Right. And so that creates a stress in people's lives. So so you're you've uh, you're you're making their lives better and less stressful. Yeah. You know, um, the research that you're doing, I, I guess your goal as an institution is to you know, improve the markets? Uh, is, that, is that your goal, is to improve the markets, lower the costs, and just inform people? Or, or what are you trying to do um, there at uh, Alteras, Alterum's yeah, Altera, Center? Yeah. Well, we're, you know, in my, my little center is fairly focused, uh, highly focused on just tracking, spending on a more timely basis, and pointing out to people what uh, level of rate of increase would be sustainable. Um, but branching off into, uh, you know, lately there's a there's a whole field of uh, social determinants of health. I don't know if you've heard this, but Mm-mm. you know, the health of a of a country's population is much less determined by how the quality and quantity of health care, medical care they receive, and much more related to uh, education and income, and and uh, you know levels of stress in in the society, mm. and. So there are studies now showing that states within the United States that spend more on safety net programs um, relative to health uh, have healthier populations, and and European nations that spend more money on safety net programs and social determinants of health end up with healthier populations, whereas the, the U.S. spends far and away the highest percentage of its economy goes to health care. We, we spend 18% of our income on health. Next highest developed nation is something like 12%, maybe Switzerland. I yeah. Think. And yet we are in the middle of the pack in terms of the health of our population. Hmm. So, you know, medical care is is a very crucial uh, option to have and service to have in your economy, but it's not the primary determinant of how healthy your population is. Really? So it's more... I mean, more spending on education, income, you know, managing and improving income issues and managing the stressors in society would would yes. do better. 
Yes. And so, and I think, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act expanding coverage, uh, even though it does stress out the people who hate it. Right, right. <laughs> it lowers the, the stress yeah. on the people who have received it. I think you just fixed my biggest problem of the year is why my neighbors, why, why they put a dog park in my neighborhood. But it's to de-stress everybody. Yeah, yeah. That's it. I was wondering, like, why are we building dog parks? I don't even have a dog. Pet pet therapy is actually a mental health uh, treatment. Oh, that's – I mean, it's a really complicated issue. And, boy, when you give us those numbers about what's going to be happening, what, in the next 30 years or so, that's scary because that's – something's got to change. And um, and then I guess you lobby. Do you guys end up lobbying for this and pushing, you know, or like cause somebody's got to be ringing the bell that, hey, folks, we're heading toward an iceberg. Yes. Um, we, uh, in general, we're not for profit. And so we're careful to be nonpartisan and in general do not do lobbying, although I think there are certain certain types of, of policies we're allowed to lobby for. But for the most part. We just try to be, uh, you know, a source of objective, accurate, timely information on these issues. Yeah. Well, we appreciate it. I think it's I think it's just great information and it should be mind blowing. Two hundred billion dollars on mental disorders, even more than heart issues, heart disease. Wow. We appreciate you again. uh, Dr. Charles Rurig, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Matt. My pleasure. You bet. And keep up the great uh, research and the great work. You can find out more. Remember, if you go to alterum.org, A-L-T-A-R-U-M dot org, great insights, great research. Um, we'll, we'll take a break, folks. Come back. When we come back, we'll do a little coach's corner for you. We'll be talking about how to manage your own anxiety, give you some tools, some coaching ideas for uh, controlling you know, a little bit of the nerves. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. $201 billion. $201 billion, folks, for mental health uh, care. That's it's just crazy, crazy numbers. But there are some things, let me just suggest, that you can do to manage uh, or at least try to work and coach yourself through some of your own uh, anxiety issues. We'll particularly today talk about anxiety, and I work with a lot of uh, just a lot of people. Um, so many times I'll have a mom and a dad bring their kids in to see me, and as we sit down, they'll start just talking about how their child hates school. They'll talk about the, you know, they have a hard time going out and socializing and doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and it worries the parents, right? And so you have a mom sitting there saying, look, aren't you going to go play? You really ought to go play. The other kids are playing. Why don't you ever want to play? You're such a disappointment. And even if it's not like intentionally said that you're not cutting it, something's weird with you. Um, they already know that these kids know that. And what I find is a lot of times an anxious parent comes in and they're worried. And by the way, anxious about their child who probably has a little of their own anxiety, whether it's social anxiety or what have you. And so what I do, uh, one of the things I do in my organization is I help um, coach people through 
their anxiety. And there's just there's a lot of great research. And by the way, the, one of the number one ways to deal with your anxiety, 85% of it roughly, um, is simply your breathing, period. Usually when you're anxious, your your body starts to uh, – because of the, the, the hormones and what's happening, your breathing tends to be more shallow and fast, right? So a shallow, fast, rapid breathing, which makes it so all of a sudden you're not getting a deep, full breath, which stresses you out. Yeah. I think I was talking about something else, but uh, like, you know, Lord Vader, for example, Lord Vader sometimes might have anxiety. Who knows? But one way we can deal with it is um, is breathing. Just a deep cleansing breath, a deep enough breath that your chest, your belly, everything just pops out when you take that breath. And if you take a couple of those, you'll immediately feel some of the tension, the anxiousness. It'll dissipate. One reason is because your body is getting the air it needs. Another way that you can do this is um, talk it out. One of the fastest ways to get your anxiety out of you is simply to share it with another person. But sometimes it stresses you to share it so you don't share it, right? And instead you go, maybe you pull away, you disappear, you, you maybe medicate. A lot of people just go medicate their anxieties and emotions. They just try to numb them. They'll drink, they'll, you know, do marijuana, but they're doing what they can to get rid of this anxiety and to relax. By the way, others are taking pharmaceutical pills that are coming from their doctor, right? One might be legal, one's illegal, but the the point, I guess, behind it is we're still using some other method, a drug, to manage our emotion and our anxiety. It's needed. I get it for some. I get it. Um, I personally would suggest you go to the legal form because you're probably going to have less anxiety right, than chasing down the illegal form. But everyone should try to find a person or be the person that someone that you care about can share an oath to. Uh, think about it. Do you have somebody you can talk out your most difficult things in life? Because if you don't, then you're going to stuff them. And when you stuff them, it's going to probably make you more anxious and usually more or less likely that you're going to go act and do what you need to do. And then when anxious people don't go do what they need to do, they start to get depressed because they're not cutting it. They're not cutting it. Um, An activity that you might want to do is just find that one person you can share your deep feelings and concerns with, track them down, and even tell them, look, you're my, you're kind of my go-to person on some of this, and I don't want to burden you. I don't want to overdo it, but could we just plan a time to meet every couple of weeks and talk or however often you, that it works out for both of you? Another way to get some of the anxiety out is to write it out. One of my favorite activities with my clients is when they're feeling stressed, they've got a lot on their mind. If they've got stuff they've got to do, go write it down. Write your to-do list. Make a big, fat, nasty, gnarly to-do list. But some of the things aren't part of a to-do list. It's just feelings you're feeling. You're feeling overwhelmed. Your thoughts are swirling around in your mind. And what I'd suggest to my clients that they do is they write what they're feeling. Whatever they're thinking, they write it out. Like, holy cow, this job's driving me crazy. If I have one more person do this, I'm going to go crazy. Write your feelings out. And then what I ask them to do is write another line as they're writing. Instead of writing on a new line every time, write write on the same line over the same sentence you wrote earlier. And then on the third time, go do it a third time. 
time on the same line. So you're going to write a sentence three times on the same line. And what's cool about it is it gets all the ideas out, the thoughts out. It gets the energy out, the emotion out without ever um, – without making it readable. So you can pretty much say whatever you need to say. It also releases the energy because it, it takes energy to write. So by the time you're done getting that energy out, it's out of you. You're tired. You're exhausted. It's powerful. Another tool, think it out. You can sometimes think your anxieties away by simply, you know, being realistic and gathering data instead of just automatically taking the negative thoughts of the fears of the future and this pressurized world. Start using, a, you know, a part of your brain to actually evaluate your thinking. Notice your thoughts. Go through what you're thinking in your head. Okay, so that's a negative thought. What's another way to look for this? Another way to think it out is to look for more evidence. Usually when you talk to somebody that's anxious, they don't have all the evidence of what's going on because they've only collected the fearful evidence. But what I would always ask my son who was suffering with this, I'd say, can you give me some examples of where you're doing really well at school? And amazingly, there was an abundance of answers. And it starts to let his cognitive thinking override some of his emotion. Another tool that I think is super powerful is to turn your anxiety out. A lot of anxiety, I believe, is just we're so self-focused because it, you know, we're collapsing in on ourselves. And what we might want to try to do is find a way to serve our way out of this anxiety. Get out of yourself and go start offering yourself your tools, your resources, your help, your guidance. Offer to serve others. And as you offer to serve others, you get that great happy neurotransmitter, dopamine, starts to make you feel good. Anyway, folks, it's a tough game. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying there are other answers. There's four right there. I got many, many more, and uh, they're yours, and they're free. Start there. Or get online and start researching it. We'll take a break. That's the Coach's Corner. We'll be right back. 